Exactly. Otherwise, they fall over because when you put them on their midfoot, like our slouches, I, I don't know if you've seen those, where like we'd get them on their midfoot. So like my cue there is stand in a split stance and then get your ribs to drive over your midfoot. So your ribs are over your midfoot now. And then when you relax your neck, you'll automatically feel more tension going through your calf because we're taking away some of your strategies to hold your pressure. Then I'll get them to slouch the rib cage and then even more pressure goes through their, their plantar flexors. And then by the time we get them to reach their fingers down to their toes, there's no option but to come back up through pushing through the, the midfoot. That was Dave O'Sullivan, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights, they're light in nature, 100-200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body in ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Hello, and welcome to another show. Great to have you all here. So, when it comes to injury prevention, uh, one of the things I love about talking injury prevention is just the muscle patterning and kinetic chain patterning that comes out of it. Honestly, training athletes just to not get hurt was never truly exciting to me. I mean, I did appreciate and, and grow in my ability to help athletes have healthier seasons. And I felt like actually I've developed a really effective system at that. But what I really enjoy the most out of all this, I would say in terms of just from a learning perspective is just learning more about the body, learning more about what makes us tick and what, what patterns we're optimally supposed to use and how so often we might be harming these patterns through things that we are doing in the gym too often or too intensely or too frequently. And so today we're going to have really a masterclass in not only really knee injury prevention, but foot and hip function and basic exercises that are going to absolutely force athletes into positions where they're maximizing their foot, their calf, their glute. And how do we build a program up from there? To guide us through this is Dave O'Sullivan. Dave is a chartered physio and he's the founder of Pro Sport Academy. He's worked with elite level rugby for many years and he now teaches his own approach through his Pro Sport Academy, as well as being in his private practice. 
You may have heard David Gray back on his first appearance on this podcast talk about how he mentored under Dave O'Sullivan and learned from him on things like delayed knee extension and delayed knee extension being a really important way of recruiting the glutes and movements. And uh, as I've talked with Dave and heard him on other podcasts, Dave is a bucket of information. He has synthesized so many great physical therapy and human performance systems out there into his own method. And Dave gets results all the way from square one, return to play, all the way up to getting athletes ready to step onto the pitch on a high performance level. We can learn so much from his knowledge. And on today's show, we're going to talk about bridges and split squat slouches on all forms. Basically, how do we train the foot from square one all the way up to more high performance methods? Tons of stuff in here on knee injury prevention, glutes, using drivers and advanced methods in return to play, and even when and when not to work the big toe in training. So consider this a foot to hit masterclass, tons of awesome information in here. And one last thing is that some of these exercises, go check out the show notes on the justflysports.com website, and I'll have some video links to some of these exercises that Dave is describing within the body of the podcast. All right, let's get on to it. Episode 247 with Dave O'Sullivan. Dave, so, you know, I'm sure other countries uh, or here in the United States, you know, there's probably a little bit of uh, sadness of not being able to, you know, fully celebrate St. Patrick's Day and give it its due. But I'm sure in Ireland, it's probably even worse. So uh, how are you guys managing uh, St. Patrick's Day over there right now? Yeah, so as I said, I, I'm in England at the moment, but I, you know, I, I'd usually be down the Irish Centre, um, probably six to eight points deep by now. So as I said, I first... Uh, First Patrick said my staff have, have worked um in a in a long, long time. So it's a bit different. Um, I know my dad's watching Cheltenham, uh, the horse racing today. That's a that's a big St. Patrick's Day event in, in Ireland. So he's he's having a bottle of beer. So I, I might have might have a bottle after after this, maybe, but it's a, it's very, very different. Yeah, it'd be it'd just be yeah, it'd be a little weird. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've never been to Ireland. <laughs> I, it's always it's on the to-do list, but um, yeah, it's definitely a, interesting to think about. One thing I so I wanted to kick this off and thinking about your background, it it's, strikes me as similar to mine, just like in just reaching out to a lot of different people and systems and trying to make it your own. But I'm curious the systems that have influenced you the most in your career, and maybe just get quickly into a little bit of your background as well and where you've been, and then some of the main learning points along the way. Yeah, so um, I'm a, a physiotherapist uh, by by profession, I suppose if you want to call it that. I kind of finished university went straight into uh, professional sports so kind of the done thing in in uh, the uk is like oh you know go into the national healthcare setting do your rotations but i always had a passion for for kind of um sports and, and sports injuries um so went straight into rugby league rugby union worked in working 13 years now in, in that really so and then alongside that uh, i have my own private practice in, in huddersfield in the uk so yeah, I suppose I, you know, my story, I, I don't know if, if, you know, I've told it a few times is I got frustrated, um, especially when I went, when I moved back to Ireland to, to work with uh, Monster Rugby, which is my kind of my big rugby club. And, you know, two guys retired on my on my watch there and um, two very, you know, which I, I think you might touch on two very different reasons. One was like blatant, like pathology, like uh, I won't say the joint they'd be pretty high profile but one like a lot of pathology then the other was 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 more you know probably just mindset if, if i'm being brutally honest and so they were two very different injuries and that's when i had enough really i was like geez like you know i thought it was a lot better than i was and i realized that actually i'm, I'm not as good as i think i am <laughs> being brutally honest so then yeah i just went on this kind of courses murray go around and then you know i spent a fortune on courses uh, i was obsessed like even books and stuff like that. i've got thousands of books and 
it kind of all came to set, uh, standstill with me then when you know just like my big pet hate is like short-term changes where you can create this like change in range of motion or you can do something but 10 minutes later they walk out the door and they're, they're back to square one again so that really frustrates me in sport because there's nowhere to hide in sport like the guys are with you 24 7 basically so i learned quickly not to uh to get too impressed with that stuff so just kind of uh, when i gave up course hopping i just said look i don't think there's anything else there certainly that you know that i'm missing and i kind of gave myself permission just to take the best bits of, of various courses and, and i suppose put it more into a structure so there's a guy, uh, I don't know if you've come across him, he's called Louis Gifford. He's a physio in, in the UK, he's deceased now, you know, bless him. But I read his books, Aches and Pains, and, and he talked a lot about creative exposure. And that's when I, I was like, that's what I'm missing is it's that's why stuff's coming back again, because it's it's not necessarily the exercise or the, the hands-on treatment was the, the right or the wrong exercise choice. It's just it's they needed a bit more high-level load tolerance to, to keep these changes. Because when they go into the real world, like stress and and movement, and there's so much stimulus going into the into the nervous system, it's very very different to being in the physio room and you're you know you're doing three sets of ten or you're doing you know a nice breathing exercise. It's very very different. So that's when then I started to look at all the stuff I'd done, and and to be honest, it just all kind of clicked into place for me. Really, was you know I'd done a lot of different stuff. Like FMS would have like influenced my approach. You know, Gray Cook like back in the day and. Gary Gray in America, he he was massively with 3D movement. And then like I've done Gary Ward's course as well. PRI then came along and all of this stuff, you know, just putting it all together. And then, you know, I started to get into Franz Bosch's stuff and, and that stuff really resonated with me. And then the the big defining point for me really was uh, when I came across the motor adaptations to stress literature. So that was more like, um, you know, what happens when we have pain and how the body responds and I could really resonate with that because I could see the stuff happening in front of my eyes where a guy comes in and they're not, they don't have pain, but they have a sensation that's uncomfortable and it, it's causing them to affect either their performance or it's enough for them to come and ask for help, but it's not quite pain, if that makes sense. And, and I, I'm seeing this day and day out in rugby. And when I started to understand that stuff, that's when then I started to, to kind of really put the pieces of the puzzle together and really appreciate previous injuries and how adaptations can happen because of those injuries. And, and then, as I said, I just kind of put put it all into a structure, really, and and brought it, you know, back to the Franz Bosch. Definitely helped me bring it back to physiological principles. We're looking at the like how muscles, like physiological properties of muscles, and then looking at all of that stuff. And I always felt with Franz's stuff, you know, that I've said it to him is, you know, when I questioned him about pain, he openly admit he doesn't know that much about that stuff. It's more performance. So that's when I said, okay, you know, I need to create some stuff that ultimately will bridge the gap from his stuff which is very high level stuff to to the guy that's injured and, and ultimately get him ready to that kind of stuff so that's when i just started when i looked at like principles of, of movement and stuff like that you know kind of look at it and my exercise design changed slightly and, and it wasn't a whole like or oh, throw everything that i was doing like for instance the midfoot stuff i was just like well instead of bridging through the heel bridge through the midfoot you know it was subtle changes but they were making big differences and, and once I started to understand why we were we were doing that stuff, then that gives me a lot of clarity in in tweaking stuff and in progressing stuff. And, and I, I think that was the, the kind of key thing really was the long lasting changes and um, and just putting it into a, a system really, if you want to call it that. Sorry, I've blabbered on there. <laughs> no, it's good. It's it's nice to know where you've you've been, and obviously you've learned from so many people that I think it does it takes some due justice to actually explain where you've been. And I. Honestly, I feel like this whole podcast, I could say, okay, 
know, uh, tell me the main things you're doing with, you know, Gary Gray and Gary Ward and PR. I mean, we could do a whole show on that. So I hope to hear that woven in throughout because I'm familiar. and I know a lot of listeners are familiar with those systems as well, or at least a few of them, I'm sure. And so I'm curious what that I like to tend to think about things in the 80-20 principle, the 20% of what that system does. I mean, not always, but I think generally yeah, there's there's some big rocks in any system that's going to give you quite a bit of result. And that's that's the way I've kind of tried to tend to think of it because otherwise I'll, I just don't have enough time in the day <laughs> to study everything. I don't think yeah, any yeah. of us do. And so I'd like to, I guess, you know, something you had said that I was thinking of was you had this point where you just weren't happy with, you know, where you were at. And you mentioned that a big thing was kind of that bridge between the therapy and then the full return to play. So like almost that performance-based rehab and those types of things. So I'd like to get into, I guess, maybe like the spectrum of how you approach things. I, I think a lot of people are familiar with like low-level therapy drills, but yeah. I'm really interested in that bridge. Like, And even one thing, and let's maybe we can start about talk with the foot because that's always, you know, that's in vogue. It's always fun to talk about. I enjoy learning about it. Uh, you said you had gotten massive changes changing from a heel pressure to a midfoot pressure. So maybe we can start talking about key things that you want to have happen in the foot and how that shifts from, you know, I just hurt myself. I have very low capabilities to, okay, I'm now I'm running again to now I'm, I need to change directions explosively. Again, maybe this could be the whole show. And if that, if that's all we talk about, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. But give me an overview of how you approach the foot from, from hurt all the way up to high performance. Yeah, so I suppose I, I'm very, the stuff I do, it, it, I, I still don't know how to explain this well. I'm specific in the directions that I want to put load through. And that's where you'll really see Gary Gray's stuff. Like if I want to put more load through the lateral hip, I'll, I'll make a variation like that. But in terms of what I'm trying to do, it, it's very non-specific in terms of I just want to put load on these tissues and I want to let the, the system self-organize. So I probably, you know, and, and that's a good point in terms of the courses and stuff. Like I've taken all these courses and I, I've got the utmost respect for a lot of these people. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of, of maybe what they're saying. And I think that's that's okay. But like I'm looking at stuff and when I go to a course, I go, okay, I don't really agree with that. But why is he getting, why is he getting those results? You know, and, and that's my mindset when I go into a course. Like I'll be, I'll be brutally honest with you. So and I, I think too many therapists to kind of, as you kind of alluded, you hear a word that you don't like you, and you, you, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I'd like to think I'm open-minded and, and I go, okay, this stuff, there's something in this, you know? And then when I bring it back to the principles and, and try to make sense of stuff, I think that's where I get my big breakthroughs is looking at why this stuff maybe is helping. So sorry, but off tangent there. So when I, when I design a rehab program, I look at the end in mind and then I reverse engineer it basically. So when we look at a top end speed, you know, what's happening there, what qualities do we need? Uh, what muscles need to, to be able to develop high levels of tension and, and tolerate load? That's that's probably the, the biggest question I need to, to answer. And if it's a straight line kind of sport or if it's a change of direction, then then that's obviously gonna gonna change things a little bit. So, you know, when that foot hits the floor, there's there's some really good studies coming out in the last couple of years. And I got this wrong. You know, I, I thought it was all about the hamstrings, it's not. Is the you know, the soleus is the king. And I got this wrong. I thought it was the hamstrings for years. And it was like in the last year, I've only started to, to realize that it's actually Cilius is, is that, you know, I, I know you want to talk about like the one muscle for knee pain, that, that's it. And because that needs to take between six and eight times the, the body weight. So getting the weight off the heel onto the midfoot, you're just getting low tolerance through Cilius. You know, that's, that to me is, is one of the big reasons why we're getting so much success with these exercises. So, you know, there's a Dorn study, 2012, which is, is kind of going around Twitter. 
and it, you know, it, it takes between six and eight times the, the body weight. And then there's a guy, you know, I always, I don't want to mess up now. I'm shocking for remembering names, but uh, I think it's Manier et al. There's like a David Opar. He, they've done these couple of studies that show that Celius, the first 25% of stance, your Celius is, is basically managing, you know, your tibia. It's, it's pulling your tibia posteriorly while the quad and, or the vastus, sorry, and the, the gastro are pulling it anteriorly. So there's that massive balance there that needs to happen between Celius and Basta and Gastro for the first 25%. So, you know, as that foot hits the floor, that's where it gets really interesting to me is if we, because the brain knows, the, the nervous system knows, and if it doesn't want to put load through a tissue, how your foot hits the floor to me, in, in my opinion anyway, your brain's going to find a way to avoid loading it, which kind of goes back to the motor adaptations literature. So, that was interesting to me. So then when, when we put them on their midfoot and we, we get that, that Celius working well, and I, like up to probably a year ago, I thought it was a lot of what I was doing was the hamstring stuff. But once we got that going, things started to change, you know, and, and their low backs relaxed, we've got more ribcage mobility and, and all that stuff. So so that that was interesting to me. So then I was looking at sprinters and looking at, you know, the what's happening at the knee, the function of the hamstring and, and Celius. And then starting to see actually a lot of this stuff, it's 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 about that co-contraction with the with the knee. And that kind of fitted into the time I was with Bosch and and looking at co-contractions. And so then I just started to reverse engineer a lot of the drills into that slow movement at the start, but building high levels of tension. And I think that's the the key thing is when I say it's very non-specific, what I do is I just put them into a position and I just go to them, deal with that. You know, and, and that's where we can bring the breathing stuff in with. And it's like develop high levels of tension and you'll see them shaking. Their nervous system will be going crazy. And then, but they'll figure it out because we're resilient people. And, you know, that's where you'll see them. They'll do everything in their power to get their load off that midfoot. They'll go back on their heel. They'll snap their knee back. They'll do anything possibly to, to get load off that midfoot. But once we keep it on that, then we started to, to get real good results. And then, the biggest thing, which is the step before running or before return to play, which I, which I think people don't do enough of, is that leaping and that hopping. And to get, uh, I was coaching, uh, you know, at least yesterday, coming back from like just knocks over the weekend and we're just preparing them to, to train. And that awareness of landing on that midfoot and feeling in a strong position, because it's all about the next step when we do these leaps, isn't it? It's, you know, getting your foot in a good position to reproduce force into the floor, either go forward, back, sideways we just want movement options but that's an awareness to me that a lot of these athletes they skip the the midfoot so like if, if you have ankle issues like and you get a pinch in your your ankle when you do need to wall test you're probably going to skip the midfoot you're going to go straight onto your toes because if you go straight onto your toes your heel's going to lift you're not going to have to pinch that ankle or, or something like that so i think athletes they stay on their heels or they stay on their toes they miss that midfoot so giving them that awareness of the midfoot and and when I reflect now, why our stuff or why our stuff works so well, I think is we're giving a massive awareness back and we're showing the nervous system that it's safe to tolerate load through the midfoot again. So when they get to the high level hopping, they have it and they've got that awareness and then they can find it. And then that that's so important. And then I think for, for deceleration and, and change of direction and most of the athletes that, that come to us, they've kind of, a, you know, they've done all the strengthening and they've, they've been with great therapists. A lot of it, it's that it's, it's the coordination or the ability to build tension as opposed to just the strength. So I kind of see this stuff as the step before strength. I still think strength's very important, but I think it's the ability to build tension and the nervous system happy to build tension. That has to come before you actually you put load on them because 
you'll find a way to get it to avoid loading certain tissues. I've seen that time and time again. Yeah, I love that. And what I've noticed, um, athletes uh, like with knee pain, and it's funny you pronounce, I'm like, do I pronounce soleus wrong? Or is this just the American pronunciation? It's probably me. I, I get my words mixed up all the time. So <laughs> it's, it's a good chance it's me. <laughs> I, know, I, I have no idea, to be honest. I know how it's spelled. And I just say it how I think it's spelled. But for people listening, yeah. it's the, uh, the it's flatter muscle, the flatter, deeper calf muscle <laughs> compared to the diamond, you know, bodybuilder, gastrocnemius muscle. But it makes sense to me what you're saying with that, because I actually hadn't I hadn't heard that before until you mentioned it on Robbie's podcast with that being like the linchpin. And to me, it's almost I, I'd be curious what you think about this is like a chicken or the egg scenario. I notice athletes who tend to have a lot of lower body dysfunction and knee pain. If I, I put them in a split squat, for example, and I watch their back foot mechanics they usually go into a lot of dorsiflexion and they can't really control. It's like the soleus, I guess you could say, isn't really controlling that back foot. Like when they drop into the bottom of a split squat, I like to see the heel come up as the knee comes down. And I'll notice athletes who tend to have dysfunction, their their heel will just sit back and they'll, they'll go into extreme dorsiflexion. There's just nothing really neurologically happening there. And I, I do a lot of work too in, in running with like trying to get the arches of the foot to form. And then as the knees, the shins going forward, you know, working the heel up and working the arch. But I think, is it, do you think it's like a chicken or the egg thing in the sense of the soleus maybe shuts off over time because the boot mechanics just aren't good. The athlete isn't, has poor foot sensation and just lets the heel drop and the knee just goes over. And I don't like, how do you think athletes get to that point? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think, I think the, the interesting thing about the midfoot and, and the soleus is the soleus has to work with pretty much every other muscle in the lower limb. So, I think personally, this is my opinion, but I think what happens is if you might have had an MCL injury and your brain might want to load that, that adductor and that medial hamstring. So when you push to the midfoot, your soleus, when that loads, it's also going to load the distal hamstring. So by not loading the soleus, you don't also load the hamstring. So you might end up, you know, that might be somebody that you might end up, you know, putting more pressure uh, either side so that you kind of avoid loading that. So I think the, the soleus is just, is the, the thing kind of, I know I, Gary Gray talked about the knee, the knee being, being stuck between the hip and the ankle. I think the soleus is the thing stuck between the foot and the rest of the limb. So, you know, for some part, one person, they might want to load their big toe because it's going to put load through their perineals, which is an all ankle sprain versus someone else who's doesn't want to load their fifth metatarsal because it's, it's going to load their tip post or whatever. So, you know, I, I think that might, is my gut feeling why, why that that this common kind of reaction happens where people don't have good intention to their, to their soleus. Gotcha. And so I, I think it, I think it's the next step basically of what it's protecting up the chin. And that goes kind of back to the previous injuries, I think. Gotcha. And I imagine that's where maybe Gary Ward stuff comes in with filling space with wedges. And like, if someone needs pressure on one part or the other. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hundred percent. And I think like my, my goal is I want the whole foot to do its job. So like my end goal is when you squat, and you come down into hip flexion, I want the weight to come to the heel. And when you come up out of hip flexion and you go into hip extension, I want the weight to go to the foot, midfoot, forefoot. So I want the full foot to do its job. But majority of the rehab in the early stages, we have to bias the midfoot because that's the bit usually that the nervous system is, excuse me, I don't know if I'm not swearing this, but it's scared shitless to, <laughs> yeah, to, right. to put, put load through it. So I'm kind of evil in that way. I'll just put them into a position and go, here, take, take that load, figure it out. And I, I'm lazy. Like I'll, I'll literally... Yeah, like two trick cues and just let them there and and they figure it out otherwise they're going to fall over and i think that's where it, it's I, I can't say with confidence i know what's going on a lot of the time but it's just like that i keep when i keep it that simple i i tend to i don't, I don't tend to get as distracted 
I like what you were saying just like a few minutes ago. You put an athlete base in a position and let them figure it out. It's almost like put them in a position where they, they have to figure it out. I, I'm assuming that's it, kind of it, what you're going it, Exactly. Otherwise, they fall over because when, when you put them on their midfoot, like uh, like our slouches, I, I don't know if you've seen those, where like we'd get them on their midfoot. So like my cue there is stand in a split stance and then get your ribs to drive over your midfoot. So your ribs are over your midfoot now. And then when you relax your neck, you'll automatically feel more tension going through your calf because we're taking away some of your strategies to, to hold your pressure. Then I'll get them to slouch the rib cage and then even more pressure goes through their, their plantar flexors. And then by the time we get them to reach their, their fingers down to their toes, there's like, there's no option but to come back up through pushing through the, the midfoot. And, and that's, I saw that uh, variation of access with Peter O'Sullivan. He's a therapist in Australia. I'm not sure if you're aware of him. And he was using something similar, like a bilateral version of that with a back pain patient who was back pain for 20 years and he's on stage doing all this stuff. And I know there's, there's kind of, you know, there's expectations and, and all that stuff with, with it as well. But like, to me, I'm looking at what he's doing and I'm like, you know, people were saying it's like, you know, uh, the bio, the psychosocial, all of this stuff. I'm looking at co-contractions. I'm looking at ribcage depression. I'm like, just wh- why is this helping? And, and I'm seeing then that was like clicking into place. Yeah. He's co-contracting at the knees. He's mobilizing the, the ribcage. He's stretching the diaphragm. He's getting up to breathe you know, and, and starting to put all, all the pieces together. So then what I did after that course, I just made a split squat variation of that. And, and that's what, how the slouch was born, basically, the, the kind of slouch that we use um, in the, in, that I teach in the mentorship. So get them on their midfoot and then just relax their neck, relax their back. And it just started working great with lower limb injuries because it's just, it's getting everything to do its job. And as you come back up from the slouch, the beauty of it is unless you, you extend your neck and your back, you have to use your glute there to come back up and, and hip extend so it kind of goes back to, to keeping things simple where you um you know you give them no choice but to use the the muscles otherwise they're, they're going to cheat yeah i think i know what you're talking about the slouch uh david gray showed me it i think in where one of our very first skype conversations a few years ago and i the way i think about it and i want to get into like maybe the more specifics of how do you coach the midfoot i, I totally agree with you i i see in athletes who do have like dysfunctional knee type issues it's like it's heel and then it's stay supinated and get into the toes basically seems to be their strategy so often where they don't i mean pronate or get into the midfoot so i'd love to go over some yeah, strategies yeah there. i mean I, i'll give you videos man if you want to put videos on the show notes or whatever i, I can give you some videos as well that, that's no problem all right we'll have them we'll have them on the show notes so if you're listening check out the the main page yeah, and we'll it's, it's very hard to describe <laughs> but yeah i think i might be able to i mean the way i perceive it and just because i do think this principle fits we've done a lot of shows on on this podcast series of like an impingement-based strategy of squat bilateral squatting, for example, where someone sticks their chest out and butt back and their ribs are forward and they have a compression in the low lumbar spine and that's their strategy. And I look at the slouch, at least if I'm thinking of it, as like, okay, now we're in a split, like a quarter split or a half split stance. And and instead of an impingement, like you're, you're, you're going the other way, like a Jefferson curl. And it's it's almost like all these muscles that were like, kind of inactive because you were using more of a bone structure, a lumbar strategy are now active because you kind of like took the lumbar out of it, I guess, if that makes sense a little bit. hundred percent. Yeah. That's all we're doing. And professional athletes that I work with day in, day out, they like really struggle with that stuff just as much as, as the, the non-sporting patient. And that's the beauty of this stuff is, as I very much see that as a nervous system exercise and I think the other big, the nice thing about that is, as you said, when you take the, the lumbar spine out of it, there's nowhere to hide for yes. the lower leg and it has to build a lot of tension, you know, so we, we can put, 
you know, a lot of load through these tissues without weight. And it, it, it's so easy to, to do, which is why, you know, I really like them. Yeah, the I know that just the bilateral Jefferson curl, like just standing on a bench and rounding your back with a lighter weight, basically going the opposite of what you typically lift is becoming more popular for just kind of, I don't like to say bulletproofing. I don't really like that term because it kind of, I don't know, maybe it disrespects the mechan- working the body mechanically. You know what I'm saying? Like, like as yeah, for- I think I think with the yeah with the Jefferson curl, I think the, probably the big difference between the slouches and the Jefferson curl would probably more be the knee going forwards. Yeah. So I I'd be very much keeping the knee forward to force the soleus to take a lot of load. So it wouldn't be just you know trying to. Um, I think if you kept the knee straight, that's going to make it harder to get onto the midfoot. So that a lot of them would be on their heels, and then you're probably putting a bit more eccentrics through the lower back. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. What what I'm trying to do with the slouches is is get the knees forward over the midfoot and by relaxing the back, I, I don't want an eccentric contraction, like a true eccentric contraction, if you, if you know what I mean, where they're, they're, the intent is to try to contract. I want the back, as you said, to, to relax um, as opposed to, to try to resist extension. Does that kind of make sense, what, what I'm saying there? Yeah. So for me, like, and that, that's a really good point is like, it's so much harder to relax than it is to contract, especially with people with yes. persistent pain. And that's the, the key of it. And that's, I think, where the neurology of, of this stuff comes in. It's, it's putting people in positions where you can actually show their nervous system how to relax for the first time and relax their back. But with the slouches, it's the more we put the knees over their toes and once their weight's on the midfoot, all the pressure and all the low tolerance goes on their legs. So for the first time, their back can actually relax and I've got a phrase. I don't know if I made this up. I, I probably could have robbed it. <laughs> like, so apologies if, if I robbed it. Um, but the phrase I use is, if you improve co-contractions peripherally, you'll decrease co-contractions centrally. So a lot of our like approach in, in physio is like try to get rid of like with persistent pain is try to get rid of these co-contractions of rigidity. Yeah. Like a lot of back pain patients are moving rigid. But I find when we improve the co-contractions in the peripheral limbs, the rib cage it just melts basically the mobility comes back and you know you you can access ranges that that you weren't able to to access previously i started my career in strength and conditioning having a very manufactured approach to training you're going to do this many sets and reps of this exercise you're going to do it like this you're going to do this movement prep first and everything with that and over eight years of time as a full-time strength coach i slowly shifted into a more athlete-centered organic approach uh, where athletes had more options on how to do things they could express themselves they could move with flow we did more gymnastics we did more games we did more organic learning i will never turn back on that Along the same lines, I've gotten into a more organic approach of supplementation, moving away from caffeine-heavy pre-workouts into herbs such as shilajit, which you may have heard mentioned by guests on this show in the past as being awesome for strength and vitality. That's why I'm proud to partner with two-time previous guest on this show, Logan Christopher and his company, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out some of the herbs that have led me into becoming a stronger and more vital human being, ones that I use personally, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can get 15% off your order there, as well as get a 365-day money-back guarantee. Again, to get 15% off your order with Lost Empire Herbs and see my top recommended herbs that I use personally, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. All right, let's get on back to the show. I like that you said, like, yeah, getting rid of the co-control. I just think of it, and I guess the way I resonate with it is there's just, you're just putting less noise in the system. And I guess if you're listening to this, uh, yeah, check the videos out. But the best way I can describe it maybe is think about 
And I'm glad you mentioned like the knees over toes. I know that thankfully is becoming a paradigm that's becoming much more accepted. And I like also, like you're saying, like when the knee goes over the toe, now it's a position that the body has to deal with. And we can open up the yeah. foot to have to do more things. So for people listening, like if people are familiar with like Ben Patrick's uh, ATG split squat where the knees, the front knees going over, maybe think of like a halfway down version of that combined with a little bit of a Jefferson curl <laughs> where the knee stays forward. And maybe that's that's the best way I can describe it. But the key and the thing I always notice ever since David showed me this, I, I've had a lot of my clients and athletes do it. And I always notice speaking of not being able to relax is like the people who struggle, like they get to the bottom, they slouch over the, the split stance front knee that's forward, and then they go to go back up. And the people who can't relax like to straighten that knee out. They're, they're in like straighten back out the knee mode. They want to straighten the knee out before the hip can do its job. So that's yeah. another reason I really like that movement. Versus like just doing, I guess you could just say, oh, well, why don't you just go do bent knee calf raises? Like that'll strengthen the soleus, but that doesn't reduce the noise anywhere else. I guess you could say it's less coordinated. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. The intent and it's all coordination to me, you know, this stuff, which is why it kind of fits in with Bosch's stuff. And because you, you'll get them to change. And, and this is kind of, I suppose, where the system's going to be good. So like for me, if that was happening, like what I teach my mentor, if that was happening in standing, then we'd regress them to lying on their back. So if they're in standing, if their knee is kicking back, that to me means the hamstring and the soleus can't tolerate load well. So what we would do then is, um, I don't know if you've seen the, the midfoot bridge test that we use. So it's like you lie on the back and you just get the weight through the midfoot and you just do a little bridge. So like the bum is just like literally an inch off the floor. And what I'd expect to find with somebody like that with a knee kickback is that their hamstring or their soleus would probably mm. cramp. Because again, that to me is some protective strategy there where they're not happy to, to tolerate load. So that's where then we would probably use some of the regressions, clean that up. And then once we have high levels of load tolerance to the hamstring and sleeves, then get them in standing and do the slouch again. Because um, like it's really interesting because if, if you have somebody, from my experience, doing that and the knees kick back, you can coach them all day long and they're trying, but yeah. they'll just kick back again because they, they don't know how to access it. So... Uh, and Dave, like Dave Gray's done some lovely variations of that stuff as well. You know, he'll, he'll show like all, all variations on his Instagram as well of like the midfoot bridges on foam rollers and, and stuff like that. And, and really what that's doing is you're just, you're tolerating a shitload of soleus, a shitload of hamstring to delay any extension. So do some of that and then get back up into standing and you'll see a completely different exercise. And, and that's kind of where the system fits in where, yeah, if, if they're struggling in, in standing there, Let's get them back. Let's do the stuff on in on their back. But then let's get them back up to standing as soon as possible. Because I think that that's my other pet hate or pet peeve at the moment is that I think a lot of athletes are doing too much on their backs. Mm. I think once they have the ability to stand and yes. get them up into the hop and stuff, that's where we need to be spending our time. Because that's where I still make mistakes today. I still flare athletes up at this level. But you're, you're never going to flare an athlete up on their back. But if you put an athlete back too quickly and they, they haven't earned the right to progress through the, the high level area with the hops and, and create high rates of force development and high speeds of movement, if you don't do that and you put them back running, you're, you, to me, you're just guessing basically that they're ready to run again. So I think for me, once they have that core contraction that they need, get them in standing and spend a lot of time feeling that awareness because when you do leaps and hops, a lot of that's pretension. That as, you, as we said there, the nervous system is deciding how much pretension you're going to put as that foot hits the floor. So that's the bit I think we need to spend a lot more time with a rehab. And, and that's where we can build that resilience and that confidence with athletes. And I think 
really that's where the confidence is built it's not built on your on your back i couldn't agree more i it makes me think about um i got a, a dc current stim machine from uh, dr tommy john who's been on this podcast a few times and he he is adamant about doing the stim standing up like not sitting down not being treated on a table like he wants it to be standing and it's a the dc current's active so you can like move with it but he's very adamant about nice. standing yeah. and so it because I think people will see exercises and just say, oh, well, here's an exercise. Everyone should be doing this. And then, and yeah, I mean, at the basic level, sure. And you should, everyone should have competency. But then as soon as you're good, like, let's get to a standing position. The way I think of it, too, I'm glad you mentioned the people who want to extend the knee early. And I think a version of that that other people might be familiar with, especially like performance end coaches. And I think Kyle Dobbs talked about this a little while ago on the show, but like an Olympic lift. In an Olympic lift, once the bar passes the knees, you actually need to delay the knee extension a little bit. You need to, it's almost like you're, you're doing that deadlift-ish for movement off the floor. And then once the bar passes the knees, you don't just extend your knees right away and supinate the foot. You have to let the bar come up into the thighs a little bit where the glutes are working, but the, I guess the legs still have the co-contractions where the knee isn't extending. Like a lot of CrossFit coaches, they'll say, be patient, you know, be patient. But I find that explosive athletes, it's, I can get them to, but it's not natural. And now that I think about it, it would be good to like, yeah, like before we do that, and I'm trying to coach them to do it, we need to get competencies at these these single leg versions with a slouched torso or lying on their back. And the footbridge too, I was going to say, that one with the foam roller kills me where I like am lying on my back and my the ball of my foot's on a foam roller. Like I consider myself to have a good posterior chain. Like I can do bounds and any sprint variation, you name it. And I don't get hamstring pulls, but that thing, man, like that, that one kill, kills me for some reason. I, I've always struggled with that version with the foot on the foam roller and the ball of the foot there for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, it's interesting, is it? Cause that, like, they're, that's the ideal length tension relationship that our, our hamstrings and our sleeves to a point needs to work at. And most people, when we do exercise, especially on their back, they're just, they're too in a range. And, you know, I remember pulling the heel close to the bump to, to isolate the glutes like back in the day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, actually the most most exercise we need to be out of range and like you know i read that blog a few years ago the glutes only as good as the the hamstring and the, the gastro allows it to be which it should be now the hamstring and soleus looking back it should be uh that instead of uh, gastro but you know the the length tension relationship there of muscles is so important because they they can only produce certain amount of force over over certain lengths and speed of movement so i think you know what we're doing there with it with that outer range it's uh, and and that's going to be the one that's going to be the trickiest hamstrings as well. Like your your central tendon tears with with hamstrings, like they're always the trickiest to to get back. And that's the kind of ranges where you're you're tolerating a lot of tension, but you're transferring a lot of energy through the hamstring into the hip. And I think that's why that's a, a different feeling as well to kind of you know what your your traditional strength exercises. And that's where Bosch's stuff's great is that energy uh, that transfer of energy as well. Like that, I think that's what we're feeling personally. You know. Yeah, tell me a little bit, and maybe this fits with some of the shifts that you've had. And this would be a good one just for, I think, everybody, because this was a shift for me when uh, David taught me this, was the idea of I, when a lot of us think about glutes and hip extension, we think about just lying on our back and doing like a single leg glute bridge, just lift the butt all the way off the floor. And, you know, you aren't really necessarily thinking about the foot. And I know your version is much different than that. But as I've done it, it's way more effective. I mean, I just feel my feet, I feel everything so much more effectively. So could you explain how you like went from kind of maybe more of a, and you said you had the heel close to the butt. So tell me about how that things change once the heel 
gets away and some of the pressures when someone's like in a lying lying on their back single leg bridge situation yeah so it just didn't make sense to me so like when i was kind of looking at like because pri is like a concentric gate and gary ward's like an eccentric gate and you're looking at that and you're you're kind of looking at their stuff comparing them to you know and, and there, there's differences and, and stuff like that and then you start looking at bosch's stuff and and the salia stuff starts starts to, to come in a little bit it didn't make sense to me why we when i when I kind of look at the muscle architecture and stuff that why we are pushing through the heel so i got really interested first and as i said i was wrong because it, it's actually salius is is the king now i got really interested in the distal hamstrings because i was when i started to look at the muscle architecture i, I noticed like the semi-tendinosis and it was like right, a lot of people knee pain and, and when i started to understand tendons and you know tendons are designed to transfer energy and started to look at that i was like geez like look at these medial hamstrings like there's something in them and then you know when that knee goes into valgus that's where we really need those medial hamstrings and, and medial gastro so i think it was that point where i started to get really interested in the distal hamstrings so i was using the midfoot stuff to really get them because it didn't make sense that if i was pushing through the heel i'd be getting you know I, in my head i was thinking more you know more proximal hamstrings so getting the midfoot really got the distal and then everyone started feeling that and the interesting thing about the glute stuff is you're going to pick up, like you alluded to there, when you do a midfoot bridge, you're going to pick up a lot of tension because it, it's novel. But when you get used to that, you really feel your glute, but nothing's really changed. It's just your brain isn't picking up this, God, this is a lot of tension through my hammy. I get this all the time with athletes is, you know, the first few days, it's like, Jesus, my hamstring's working here. And then they won't feel their hamstring because their hamstring's working isometrically. And then they feel, yeah, I can really mm-hmm. feel my glute now. But they felt the glute was the same prior to this. It's just their brain was picking up that noise, as mm. you say, uh, which is a good term. So I think with the midfoot stuff, I was trying to get more medial hamstring. That was kind of when I started to change it then. Because when I, you know, when you push through your 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 heel on a sit to stand, you know, even if you sat here 90 90 and you push through your heel, you're not going to feel any medial hamstring. So that guitar string behind your knee, you push through your midfoot you know, you're, you're going to get that thing starting to, to engage a little bit more than when, when you're going to do a sit to stand. So I think that's where it all came from when I was, I was trying to get more distal hamstring. But I was actually, you know, looking back, I was getting a lot of salias. Um, but I, I thought it was all the medial hamstring at the time. Yeah, so what you're saying is as soon as you went from basically that single leg on your back, glute bridge, and as soon as you're starting to go from the heel to the ball of the foot, and you're probably... um like straightening the leg a little bit more too, like like lengthening the leg a little bit more. Now it's going to go, instead of hamstrings near the hip, it's going to hamstrings closer to the insertion of the knee. And yeah, it, yeah sorry. Yeah, that that that, may, that reminds me. It, it was all when I started to look at like the, the physiological properties of muscles, length tension relationships, and started to really bring it back to the principles. That's when I started to look at, because uh, I was looking at the hamstrings, I was looking at the muscles in a completely different track. I've actually got the, the I've got a, atlas color uh, atlas color of anatomy i can't remember the author but i bought that book and i was just looking at like i was obsessed with the muscles and how the the angles they were attaching into the tendons and all this stuff so like the perineals going in at that 45 degree angle and i was starting to study all that stuff and then i was starting like the medial hamstrings i remember they really caught my eye and then it, it, i think it just stemmed from there really you know yeah, so with the the coaching cues then, because you've you've talked about the midfoot a lot, but we haven't talked about like the the cueing, because I felt like that was really effective when David was taking me through it. It just brought a totally different feel. But like I think you use like squish and orange, or can you tell me about how do you how do you cue an athlete to push through the midfoot, and then what's that what's do, what's that doing? What's happening there? 
Yeah, I mean, I actually I robbed that from uh, from Colin Griffin. I don't know if you know him. He's like a running uh, SNC coach in Santry in Dublin and in, in Ireland. He he was on a podcast me years ago, and he was telling me, you know, he was uh, athletes when they're running, they were getting them to squash oranges. So that was that was kind of the the cue I used. That that seemed to work really well, and I just stuck with it. Now, so this is kind of where it gets interesting with, with kind of like top down and bottom up cues. Like that's a real big area of interest for me. So when we tell athletes to push through the midfoot or squash an orange, you know, or, or you could like, like look at Nick Winkleman's kind of cues or push yeah. the ground away or whatever you're using. Those top down cues are good, but what we want ideally is we want bottom up where we don't have to cue them. Yes. Um, so I think they're, they're really good cues at the start, but in the latter half of the rehab, I don't want to be cueing them to push the squash oranges. So that's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's an intermediate, intermediate step where it's like, yeah, like give them no absolute no choice but to build tension and then let's build some extra tension by squashing an orange with intent so that's the cue that that i find works well and we've actually had a patient bring an orange into one of my physios recently um so we, we, we get this all the time where she actually brought her a physical orange in because we, we, we just say that we'll say that cue so I, I have to give colin griffin credit for that years ago but um I probably disagree or I wouldn't tell an athlete. So like he told me he, he used it with squash and oranges running. I wouldn't tell an athlete yes. to do that running though, if I'm being completely honest, because I want them by that stage of the rehab program, I want them just to, to be focused on movement. I, I don't want them to be thinking with using top down cues, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I actually have a couple of thoughts there. Um, I, I feel like I should write it down because I tend to get lost, but I, I don't think I can juggle the, the balls in there of writing these down and asking you. So I'll hopefully I'll keep it together. But the, I guess the the first thing I was thinking about was, uh, you mentioned Nick Winkleman, and I was going to mention uh, something in that language of coaching book that he wrote, which was excellent on, it's almost like the only place internal cues are really good is, it's almost when, when you need the muscle, when you need to get that muscle dialed in. And he talked about um, like doing an arm curl, and there was a study where people did bicep curls with internal cues, and I think people just did them. And the people who had the internal cue of squeeze the bicep at the top actually, I think, ended up getting uh, a little bit more size on their bicep muscle or something like that. I don't know if their strength, I don't think they could curl any more weight, but that bicep got bigger. And ever since I read that, actually, <laughs> I don't do arm, I mean, I'm, if people watch my you know, like Instagram stuff, I'm pretty functional. Like I'm doing like breakdance stuff or, you know, jumping or sprinting or whatever. But I, I don't know. It's, I, last time I did my arm curls, I'm like, okay, my forearms are huge from like rock climbing and you know all these things and so and I have a ton of tension in my neck so it's like well I need to reduce that noise and I need to use really lightweight and I need to use an internal cue here because I mean it's just I mean any any bodybuilder listening to this show I don't think there's many but they would probably laugh at me you know that's intuitive of course that's what you need to do right so it almost strikes me that with something like the foot if you have dysfunctional level muscle just the muscles aren't going and you need to reduce noise like that's where those internal cues so squish the orange is good and then as you move from one of the things I um, did a lot of studying and mentoring under uh, the biomechanics and running coach at Darian Barr back when I was in California. And one of the last things, the last year I was there, he said something I really liked. And it was the idea that just, I was always trying to make sense of pronation and supination in terms of like basic gait versus actually sprinting. And a Darian had given up on really, like he said, I have given up on pronation and supination in context of sprinting. Cause he's like, at that point, it's just circles and you're you're not really going through the full range. You're just managing forces. And so I think of it like that a little bit. Like you, it, it's almost like the, the, the cues and actually working pronation, supination gives you the basic hardware and the, the basic stuff to work with. But then when you're actually running, like, and David had said this, I think on my podcast, I'm not sure, like he would get people who are a train wreck 
in actual standing tests, but then they'd actually walk around and they could like get it together a little bit, organize it. So I'm kind of like blabbering up, but I, I get it because I wouldn't use that cue either in running. Like you had mentioned, I wouldn't like I get that basic idea. But yeah, once you're going that fast, it's more maybe you're more circles and then you are like full ranges. So it makes sense to me. Yeah, no, no, it's a great point. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think like by the time that foot hits the floor at that speed, I, I think, you know, the brain, the nervous system, it, it's got a strategy in place and it, it's not caring about turning a muscle on. It's caring about not falling over, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, managing forces really. So, or, or it's trying to, you know, survival or, or beat, beat the guy next to him or whatever it is, you know, instinctively. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that. So when you we use the squish, the orange, I think it's, um, is it basically like, like in the bridge, uh, this is just how I understand it. So I just maybe to explain for listeners or confirm, like my understanding would be in like when you're on your back in that bridge, you're only lifting your hip, your butt or hip off the ground like an inch or something instead of the typical is just lifted all the way up, which creates an impingement strategy basically for a lot of people. So you're leaving your butt down and your your foot's on the ground, but you're kind of like pushing your the arch of your foot into the ground. In, well, it's not really. Yeah. So, ground, yeah but. so you just have no, no intent through your heel, basically. So you're just plant, you're putting a plant deflection force. And then you're basically just get 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 off your heel. That's probably the easiest thing. And then we don't want the bum to come too far up because if the bum starts coming up, you're going to use your back a little bit yeah. as well. So by keeping the bum just off the floor, it's going to put all the tension in, in the leg, basically. So it's, it's the same kind of concept as the slouch, but just in lying on your back. So the, the lower we keep the bum, the more the leg's going to have to do the work. The higher the bum is, the back's going to get involved, you know. So that's kind of the, the reasoning there. And with those kind of exercises, again, you know, um, I've got nothing against glute bridges and going through full range, you know, but if I, if I want somebody, so I, again, I do, I do these variations is when they do a glute bridge on the way down, I'll actually get them to dorsiflex. And then I'll actually, so on the way down from a glute bridge, they're all the weights on their heel. And then I'll get them to smack their, their actual like forcefully plantar flex, their foot into the floor and have to build tension to get mm. back up again. And, and a lot of it's interesting when you do that with, with athletes because really, it's the timing of that slap and to build that tension through soleus, through, through hamstrings, and then drive through the hip. Uh, some athletes struggle with that. Yeah. So I, I'm not, not against the heel, but I just think the heel on the way down. Yeah, I like because I, I, I like that you said that. I tend to get in, um, I don't know what you call it, like, I, I, I tend to polarize things a little bit because it's almost like if the industry was so into everything through the heel – then it's easy to just go the other way and say, well, everything's floating heels now, you know, because clearly through the heel wasn't very good for expressing power through the foot. But I like how you, you I've heard David say this a lot, using the whole foot, using it all the way from the heel all the way to the ball of the foot. And so it makes sense to me. And what I was going to ask you this, because Brett Contreras has been on the show a couple of times, and I actually would be curious what he thinks about this. As he had said, somewhere that in a basic like a glute bridge or a single leg glute bridge i don't remember what it was some version of the hip thrust and he said i think two-thirds of the population got a greater glute like emg or whatever output when their heels were on the ground and like one third got more actually when they put their balls of the feet down and did it and so i mean i i guess that doesn't say what's optimal i, I guess what i'm saying is i guess those people who got more when they put the balls of the feet down that would probably be the optimal situation wouldn't you say i mean i felt like that's what I yeah. felt I noticed when I watched athletes do it and whatever they felt came naturally, at least. It's, yeah, it's interesting that because I think that that study in itself, I'm not saying it's flawed, but from my experience, a lot of people, if you like, if they, if they can't tolerate the load to the hamstring or the midfoot, 
they're probably they're not going to because what has to happen when you push through the midfoot you want that hamstring to work like almost isometrically so if they're not good at working isometrically they're not going to access the hip as much so i think a lot of those people i could be completely wrong but i think a lot of those people that got more through the heel if they'd done the midfoot bridge i i would be very confident the majority of them would cramp in the hamstring the soleus mm. so they're, they're not good at transferring energy would would be my gut instinct on, on that, and that that's completely my opinion from just treating a lot of athletes. So you know that that would be uh, my my thoughts on that without you know being too dismissive of that study. Whereas I think with the heel, you don't have that because if you push to the midfoot, you, you, there's a nervous system component there of threat to the soleus of developing high levels of tension and the hamstring that they're not used to. So then it's like it's not about a hip thrust; it's about you know managing that shit like my sleeves is going to cramp or i can't i'm not going to develop that much tension so i wouldn't want to talk about the glute until you can really develop high levels of tension through the hamstring and work it isometrically and i think when you get that that's when you can tap into the glute because even at the top of a of a an olympic not an olympic like an rdl or a deadlift if you build tension well through your midfoot or forefoot your proximal glutes will be absolutely screaming because you don't have to squeeze your glute because everything's working well and, and you're working everything isometrically in terms of hamstring and soleus there as well and your, your glute's engaged because you can build, like Cal Dietz, I think you had him on, on the show, didn't you? Yeah. Like he talks about building tension through the big toe. You know, like his stuff fits fits perfect with my kind of um, biases in, in, in that side of it as well because it's, it's more about the connection, in my opinion, in my head, between the soleus and the hamstring to allow you to, to tap into the glute. So for me, I wouldn't have a conversation about glute activation until we knew can they actually tolerate hamstring and, and soleus, which I appreciate is different to the obviously breath stuff and, and, and the, the hip thrust, yeah. which is absolutely fine. Yeah, I've, when I first started using hip thrust with my um, sprint population like 10 years ago, people were running faster and maintaining it better. But I, I kind of almost, and then I used it, you know, for years after that with college sprinters, we got good results. But it's funny because the last few years, I've kind of gotten away from it and gotten in actually more of the bridges and slouches in, just from the thought of, well, if I can get the glutes and soleus to activate like the way it should, and then just do all the other stuff, Olympic lifts and you know various squats, like ideally it's just that the pattern's right and then you can do whatever and it'll be better versus, I don't know, that's just where I went. But my thought would be if I was to you know do the hip thrust again, which I'd be happy to with those athletes. I mean, I think most coaches just put the feet on the ground and just don't really coach anything. They just say, get the bar from point A to point B. But if you were going to coach that lift, I guess, with trying to prioritize, you would say at heels on the way down, like midfoot on the way up for the most part then? Yeah, definitely. And like I, I had this with, uh, with an SNC coach who uh, we were doing like, obviously doing group sessions with him. And, I, you know, I just showed him some of this stuff. And what, what you usually feel when you do that for the first time is you'll feel a lot of tension in your hamstrings. So when you're doing a bridge, you're like, oh, I can really feel my hamstrings here. But as I said, the more efficient you get with that, the hamstrings will start to tolerate that load better. Then you'll really feel the glutes. So you, you're not really going to feel the glutes in, in a hip thrust when you start pushing through the midfoot. From my experience clinically, you're not going to see that probably for a few weeks until the, the, the hamstrings get used to tolerating the load. Then you'll really feel the glute. But saying that, in rugby league, I actually coach them to bridge pushing through the heel as well sometimes because that's specific. Mm. Like a lot of them, they'll someone will be on their backs and the position they'll be in, they'll they'll be in that position where the heel is close to the bum, so they really have to dig through the heel and, and almost trust up. But the, when they do that kind of bridge, 
their intent it happens a lot through the hip. So they're trying to get the guy off them, like almost like wrestling. And they're they're trusting through the heels, but they're also trusting through the through the hips at the same time. So th- there's times to, to obviously coach a bridge through the heel as well. It just I think it kind of goes back to the start. It's, it's understanding why you, why you're doing things, what you're trying to achieve with with the rehab exercise. I think it's kind of paramount, really. It, this is the thing where rehab, though, I think fits into flows into performance so well. Just because I look back at my results with the hip thrust back when I was coaching these sprinters and. It seemed like, honestly, it was just the introduction of the exercise, not even going heavy with it, but just doing it and almost letting athletes experience it. And I wasn't coaching the feet. I was just letting them do whatever. And it was almost just like that novel experience without that chain of muscles seemed to offer the improvement. But it didn't seem like going from like 300 to 400 pounds helped anyone. You know what I'm saying? Like, And maybe, maybe if you didn't have a good pattern or the pattern you have to pick up to go from 300 to 400 to 500 isn't beneficial anymore. If it's bilateral, maybe you're you know, arching your back a little bit to do it. And you're just not activating things in the pattern that they would, the co-contraction pattern that they would see. It almost strikes me that, I don't know, like a progression that's perhaps more single leg in nature and more revolving around some of the things that you're talking about. If we're going to load it, uh, of course, then I just say just sprint and just bound and just, you know, just do these things at some point. You got the activation. So let's, let's go now. I don't know. I'm just curious. I mean, it's that it's an interesting thought, at least thought process. Yeah, definitely. And like I like for me, I still think that like there's a massive place for, for like hip trust and, and stuff like that. It's for me, it, it all goes back. Have they got the ability to develop tension? I think that like that's the first prerequisite really that we want them to have because as I said, you can see guys in the deadlift and they'll knee valgus, you know, to maybe use their adductor magnus to hip extend more, which which is fine. And when you when you get up into the max lifts. You hit the nail on the head there, and that's probably with, with breath work as well. When you're hip thrusting, it's not really about perfect technique. It's just like get the thing up as as quickly as you can. And and if I don't like tolerating load from my sleeves and hamstring, I'm definitely going to use my heel to to get to get up there. You know, so um, that that's going to feel more efficient for me at the moment with with my previous injuries, with my experiences, with how my nervous system is is set up. So yeah, I think for me it all comes back to ideally, yeah, let like in the weight room how we can keep the t- the tension, as you said, is just use the full foot. So heel on the way, like hip flexion, hip extension, midfoot, forefoot. If you kind of keep those principles, it's, you know, you're, you're challenging the base of support as well, which is awesome because then you're going to get the, the preflexes, the reflexes interested as well. And, and, you know, and, and, and that's kind of where Bosch's stuff fits in nicely as well then. Yeah. Maybe we can just, you know, a couple more questions and kind of get there. We've been talking about like a lot of the rudimentary, these are the basic patterns. And also, just before we maybe leave off this, so with the the midfoot and like uh, we talked about that in the back, but like in a split squat position, then the slouch or even just maybe just for just ease of just mentioning it, like let's say we're just doing a split squat and the knees coming over the toe, it's kind of like heel on the way down, but then on the way back up, you're pushing through the middle of the foot, like squishing an orange on the way back up. Yeah, and it, like it, again, it, it it completely depends if you want more vertical or horizontal force production, you know, so. Like when you get onto your midfoot, you have to lean forward slightly, you know, so, so that's going to help you get because the glute's going to want to go yeah. forward. Whereas if, if you go straight up, the knee's going to want to snap back. Ah. So the, the knee joint's going to do more work. So it just, for me, it just completely depends what, um, what you want to do. So for example, with those split squat slouches, um, I had a guy with a PCL tear. We we're in Denver actually with a react, you know, he, he actually, we were playing a mid-season tour and he done his PCL the day before we flew, came over, 
late and it was like he came over with a pcl tear so i was like oh my god so th- this was interesting so i just spent the week rehabbing him he, he got a week's holiday in in uh in denver uh which was good for him but he was doing the slouches and his knee kept bending and and i was like you know i was going i was going to correct him and i was like actually i want this because i want the quads to do more work because it's a pcl so i was like yeah yeah keep bending the knee <laughs> you know it's like right bend the knee a little bit more he's going shit i can really feel my quads there. Like, I'm perfect. <laughs> You know, it's a PCL tear. Whereas if that was an ACL, I definitely wouldn't want that. I, I'd want the other. Mm, you know, so it, it it just goes back to you know understanding what what you want to achieve. And if you want to put more load through the quad, push through the heel. You know, um, you know if you if you don't want the the silliest to, to do as much or the the hamstrings. It's interesting, yeah, to equate that to a PCL and and the forces in the front versus the back. It's, I mean, even though I don't, I don't really work with athletes in that situation. I'm very, I don't even remember having in, in my roles, but it's good to know because I guess it's nice to know that hey, this the heel could be for this in this situation if you were going to use it just before you tell everybody to not do that. And I, I guess yeah, maybe the split squat wasn't a good example because, like you said, you're. If you're doing a split squat, the weight is going to be over the front heel because that's where your rib cage is. It's all in back of you. So to get through the midfoot, something's got to be forward over the knee, you know? And that's like running. Yeah. Something's coming over the knee or something's coming over the foot, your your whole body and running or even jumping at some point. So it, it, exactly. You know, if you want to use a split squat, you want to get overload, or you want you, you know, you want to put load through through tissues, that that's absolutely fine. I think if you want to like coordinate and that's where kind of you, you cross the line into coordination, like, so that would be like a coordination split squat where your base of support's a lot shorter. And as they come up, they're, they're going through. So they're going forward as opposed to, to up. Then I think that's more of a, and I think, I think that's kind of where like Caldita stuff, you, you see he's, he's very innovative and, and a lot of his stuff, but his like his, uh, his planks and his, his uh, sprinter planks and stuff like that, you know? So I think he's, he's great for stuff like that as well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So in moving like, okay, so we got the, you know, on the back bridges, we're doing the slouches and the split stance and just trying to get that midfoot. So once an athlete can do that and then things are adequate there, when are they done with that? Like when it's like, okay, we can move past this and let's get to some more advanced. Yeah, things. great questions. That, that goes back to coordination for me. So like in my mind, coordination is this big, like if you, if you had coordination on a graph, you'd see a lot of squiggles and then you'd see smoothing. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So um, that to me is when they first start the exercise, they're almost quivering. Their muscles are shaking. They're a little bit rigid. They're struggling with the exercise. When they get to them where they can do what I would call Louis Gifford's thoughtless various movement, where they're doing it very fast and it's, it's, it's effortless or it's too easy from then move them on. So, you know, the, the second they can do that and it's not challenging them, get them up to the next level. Yeah, that's just what I mean, not even just in rehab, like I've been talking about that concept on this show the last, you know, some of the last few episodes, just even the context of plyometrics, like why do we hang around single leg hop and sticks forever? Like it's this like, you know, plyometric like doctrine that we all must come back to. Like once an athlete's good at this, why aren't we going forward and, and continuing to challenge the system? So I, it's good to hear you say that. I just feel like it 100%. can go everywhere. Yeah, and like I'll be honest, y'all. I don't think you know my my honest opinion, which is why you know I, I built out the mentorship. Most people in in my mentorship they need modules seven to twelve, and that is bridging the gap from the the low level to the high level. And that's where we can't have squash and orange, and you're going to have less core contractions because there's going to be chaos. And that's where the Gary Gray stuff fits in nicely. Is that's where we need to be with, with people. And and I always say it on the coaching calls, that's what builds confidence. 
you know, when, when they can manage a perturbation, you've got an MCL tear and their knee is valgus and, and they stick that landing and their medial gastro and hamstring kicks in and they're stable. It's like, fuck, I can do this now again. You know, that's that's so important. I, I know you talk about like the, the mental aspect of injury. It's, it's so important to build confidence because what I've seen in professional sport, and I, I don't want to kind of get too ahead of, of the conversation, but you can get somebody out of pain, but they can go back and perform like crap. Or you can get somebody right and they're just brimming with confidence. And, and I want my athletes to say, I'm ready to go back. And I've had this recently. I've, we fucked up, you know, again, you know, where we're rushing a, a guy back and, and clinically he looks fine, but he's like saying, oh, it feels a bit early, you know, and, and then they go back and, and they break down again. And it's like, shit, fucked up. You know what I mean? And, and that's where he didn't have thoughtless, fearless movement. And, and that to me is just like, you fucking idiot. Sorry, I'm swearing. I'm talking about myself. You know, not 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 listening to the alley. I broke one of my rules, you know. So so that's that's really interesting. And that's where, like what you said, our continuous bounds. Like if you've got a hamstring tear and he can continuous bound 20, 30 meters on one leg, like balls out. You know, he's coming off that session. He's buzzing because he's like got confidence in, in that leg again, you know. But he's not going to get that confidence on his back doing a, a midfoot bridge. Or, you know, go doing a hop and stick. It's just, it's just not high level enough from the rate of force development and, and all that stuff. So that's the value to me in the high level stuff is, is where we, we don't spend enough time. We rush it. Some of the, the, the clubs I work with, oh, it, it's funny because when I go into a club, I have to convince them of this stuff. And, and the first thing they want to do is they want to run them. So, you know, the minute they can run, they're, they're, they're out in the pitch and they're doing low level running and they're doing like running at 40, 50% of their, their max speed. And it's like, they should be. And I'm like, get them in the gym and work them up and get the bones done because that's the bit that's going to create the resilience. You're not getting anything from this. You know, you, yeah, we're, we're getting a little bit of running, but it's they're, they're usually going to break down with the high-speed running, but you can't get them to high-speed running. And then when we try to push them to high-speed running, they feel symptoms again because we, we skip steps. Uh, and I see that time and time again. So if we can really build that resilience, as you said there, like the continuous bones to me, that's the, the pre pre-step to high-speed running if you can do that then i can take the emotion out of it and i go mm. logically there's absolutely no reason why you can't do high-speed running now if you can do that stuff for me and of course we, we need to build them up at the graded exposure with tempos and, and stuff like that and, and not go from not to 100 but what you've done there is you've taken the emotion out the athlete is confident and he's going right i'm ready to to run fast now and i just think that that's absolutely it's so so important to have that and, and anytime i haven't had that with natalie and i put them back it, it's come back to burn me in the ass. <laughs> yeah, that's the interesting thing as uh, in working in, in with someone in your job, your shoes compared to like a coach. It's like for you, it's it's very black and white. You put an athlete in, and it, did they get hurt or didn't they? And if they did, it's just like I mean, it's it's worse in coaching position. It's like all right, we're gonna get to the big meet. Hopefully, they do well. If the athlete doesn't do well, it's like ah, well, it could have been this, this. You know, you can like kind of I don't know. Like it's just different. I'd be that's a stressful, that's a stressful thing, man. But I, there's nowhere to hide. And yeah. That's the thing. Like in professional sport, there's nowhere to hide. You know, there's consequences for your actions. We're not, I'm not a Twitter guru or a, a Facebook guru who's sound, saying ideals. You know, that's, that's the big thing is like, this shit, it's like, it's real life. And what people are saying on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, it sounds great, but actually the reality is very, very different. And it's like, oh, do your Nordics or do this or do that. And it's like, you know, they're, they're going to be fine. It's like, you know, it's it's like consultants, you know, surgeons, they they absolutely drive me crazy. It's like, yeah, he'll he'll be ready in two weeks to go back. You're looking at him going, you know, he can't even hop yet, you know, and, and you're saying like he's gonna be back in two weeks. It's like they don't have a clue. 
So real life is very, very different to, to the ID life. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with that one. I mean, yeah, especially when it's like the high pressure, high level, keeping athletes healthy. I mean, that's, uh, and it forces you to, as you've done your work, to get better, to learn more, to cover your bases. And uh, versus I think it's it's easier to hide in, I mean, not completely, but if it's just a performance outcome, sometimes I think it's a little bit easier to potentially hide and say different things could contribute to what, and you have natural talent and predispositions and stuff like that. So, so it definitely forces Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think the, the more we can take the emotion out of decision-making, the better in, in my kind of role. And I think that's where the system is good, where if we can tick these boxes, at least we know we've done it. And logically, you know, he's done, he's tolerated ground reaction forces. He's, he's producing the same rate of force development. Logically, he should be able to high speed run now and tolerate that, you know, and, and I think if we can take the emotion out of decision making, it, it's so powerful. And that's where the system is. I think it's been great for me where, as I said, I, I mess up less these days. I don't and I continue to mess up and mm-hmm. I continue to push guys too hard because that's my job. Mm-hmm. But it, it's getting the, the balance with, with, with that, really. But I like to think I mess up less and less because of the, the system, really. You mentioned Gary Gray and like, cause in getting past the rudimentary, like, okay, squish the orange. It's not novel anymore. And Bobby Stroop, who's been on the show recently a few times, I know learned a lot from Gary Gray. I'm not actually that familiar with the system. The one thing that comes to mind, I guess, is just the th- talking about drivers, like, you know, using drivers and swinging limbs as perturbations. That's about as far as I, I get or know, but I'd be curious as to how you escalate uh, the intensity with that type of uh, methods. Once an athlete's past the squish, the orange and the, yeah, so there's there's a really good paper um in 2014. I think it was, it was a guy called uh surname was Pryor Pryor et al. Um 2014. I think it was the the muscle activations of the trunk and hip, or the the muscle activation of the hip in response to the trunk movement or something. Like that. I can send you the paper again, but that that kind of justified what Gary Gray was saying for a long time. So it was great to have that kind of evidence, you know, because he's been talking about this stuff for for a long, long time. His stuff. Again, with the with the utmost respect, I thought when I, when I went through a lot of his stuff, I was like, you know, I thought he complicated a lot of it, using a lot of words, you know, that I was just lost with, and it was a bit like just do a lot of this stuff, do a lot of that. What I've tried to do is is take the structure. So by the time we get onto kind of some of those drivers and those perturbations, they already have a co contraction, they've already got a, a high level of low tolerance through the hamstring and soleus or the lateral hip or whatever it is. So then when I get to, to his kind of type of movement, I'm very confident that they're ready for that. So his stuff in my system is probably four or five steps in, if that makes sense. Mm. But that's that's great then where, and, and this is where when I, when I do the leaps and stuff, it all comes together because I want them to leap and land on the midfoot. You know, whether the heel hits the floor first or the toes, I don't care once you get back on the midfoot because that's where you're going to, you know, have movement options for the next step. Oh, then. yeah. So then, you know, I'll take uh, a leap and then I'll use a hand driver or something like that. So as the foot hits the floor, you know, a right right foot leap, I can get you to reach your right hand to the left across your body to send your pelvis laterally so that we can put a bit more load through your, your lateral hip. If I want to put more load through soleus and the knee, I can reach up to the ceiling, which is going to shorten the length tension relationship of the glute. And I'll, I'll have more load going through the soleus and the quad. But what more through the hip as you leap, I can reach forward and send the hip back and then put that in a better length tension relationship. So it's all kind of just length tension relationships and, and, and stuff like that. But I, I use a very simplified version of kind of those drivers now to create chaos and to perturbate the challenge, the base of support. And I think that to me fits nicely with the thoughtless, fearless movement because that, you know, by the time the foot hits the floor, 
you want to be reaching or do your hand driver at the exact same time as your hip foot hits the floor. Because if you do it, if your foot lands and then you do the driver, it, it's too, um, it's too controlled. Mm. Whereas we want to create that chaos. So that's where you can create a perturbation. And then you, you have to, that's a lot of that's outside of conscious control that, you know, that's all like spinal cord and, and peripheral tissues at, at that level, which is, which is great. Cause that then we're starting to, to, to bridge the gap to thoughtless, fairless movement. So yeah, so just took, took his stuff. Then started to increase the speed of movement. So I go leap, I go hop, hop off stick, continuous hops, which is kind of like your single leg bones. And then when they when they've nailed all of that, then they're they're ready to run. But what I what I'll do a lot is like an ACL. I'll use that knowledge from Gary Gray's stuff, and I might have somebody with their hands overhead with a plate, side flex them to the left, which will mean that it's a lot harder to use their lateral hip. So they'll have to use their medial hamstring a lot more, and I'll get them to continuous bound in that position. So we have to put a lot more load through their medial hamstrings. That's an ACL by that, that I had. And that was the exact mechanism that he had. And I know a lot of groin pain patients, actually, that's the position that they get in when, when, they, when they get pain because they override the groin. So with, with a groin pain patient, I might do the opposite reach to put more load through their lateral hip. So I might get them to reach to the right and do a single leg bone. So I'm putting more load through their lateral hip. So all of that, to me, understanding why we're doing things, it just comes back to length tension relationships. You can put muscles in, in positions where they're shortened, which makes it really hard for them to do work. So other muscles are going to have to, to figure it out. And that's the beauty of the nervous system is that something will do its job or figure out how to, how to do it. So the, the thorax stuff and, and putting the ribcage in certain positions, I think that it, you know, it, it's, it's genius in a way because that gives me a regression, a progression, or you know, some kind of middle point where if, if an athlete struggles with a movement, I can still get them to hop, but I can just dictate where the load goes. And and that's really useful as well in in a, in acute stage with, with sports injuries. Yeah, as you're as you're talking about all that, and again, it is it's a lot that you just mentioned, but it is simple at its core. It's simple. Its hands are ahead; they're at the side. And I think about that too. Uh, you almost gave me like um like a like a, I would call it like a the track and field like high not just return to play but high performance grade. And and if I'm doing bounding for max bound distance, there's different ways you'll see people use their arms in triple jump, or you'll see people use their arms in spirals, or I've done bounding where I, I make my hands go out wide, not for return to play, just to try to bound better, like out wide to in intentionally, like those types of, and you watch different athletes and they have different strategies. But to me, as I'm thinking about what you said, it would make sense to try to expose athletes to always, you could use your arms for this bound. And even for running, like my, I've really gone to just liking, instead of trying to confuse things, just, uh, and I confuse myself plenty, but just like running with uh, David Weck was on the show a couple of times. He's got a like a pulser, like a weight, a, a shaking hand weight that you can run and you can put it in one hand. You can put it in the other hand. Like I, I like using the exogen, like little mini weights that you can put on sleeves and just like loading one side or the other. And to me, that's so much more enjoyable to try to work with versus, I don't know, just overloading with cues sometimes. Just like give the athlete a driver in a high speed situation and see how they manage it. And yeah, that's what true the real learning. Yeah, yeah, and like that—that's the best athletes. I like they're just great problem solvers. You know, you just give them a movement problem and they—they they solve. They get it like that. They figure out a way, and that you know that goes back to kind of Bosch's self-organizing. You know, the nervous it'll just self-organize and, and figure out ways, and and it'll learn. You know, and that's as you said, they're like the best athletes. They they love that stuff, and it pisses them off, and they can't get it. Mm-hmm. You know, because they, they get frustrated. And, and But yeah, I mean, like golfers, especially, they, they're really good because they're so in tune with their, their bodies as well that, um, you know, some of the golfers I've worked with, when you give them those kind of movement problems, they, um, they, they do really well with them. 
Yeah. Whereas rugby players are the different are probably the other end of the spectrum. They're not very body aware. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they need to play golf in their off season or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they won't have much ribcage mobility for that. <laughs> <laughs> very short and abbreviated swings. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. Actually, just one last thing. I, I did maybe we'll just cap it with just the foot today because it was a good a you know, foot and hip, good topic. But one thing I wanted to mention too, you you coach midfoot just because like if you said balls of the feet, because a lot of people will coach balls of the feet or whatever, but that could shove people into their toes too fast. Is that like, a, or it keeps yeah, more so it's, it's where your laces are on your trainers. Yeah. So the laces uh, down to the, to the toes. But again, like you, you can play with that because if, if I wanted to get more FHL, I might coach you to push to the pad of your big toe. So not the ball of your big toe, but the actual pad of it. Mm. You know, so if you, if you push to the pad of your big toe, you're going to get a massive supination of the calcaneus there because that's going to get your FHL which will pull pull you into supination so um, like I've had Achilles ruptures where, where I've really focused on using a top down cue coaching the pad of the big toe mm. so it's not it's not just midfoot it's it, it goes back to understanding what you're trying to load more and you know we, we can bias the FHL we can get a little bit more tip post you know if, if I want the more perineals I'll probably go right push through the ball your big toe a bit more you know something like that so I think we need Salias on um, or we need not on, but we need a, a lot more high levels of tension through it. And then you can also play a little bit with, with, you know, whether you want a little bit more force on the lateral shin or, or the medial shin or, or whatever you want to do as well, you know? Interesting. That, you said uh, FHL or flexus halicus longus. That makes you think of Joe DeFranco used to talk about that. He had his toe training exercises. I, I'm actually, I am curious about that. So, I I think about my I again I tend to polarize stuff if I'm like it's like okay don't grip the toes I'm like okay I'm gonna make everything about you know if I have my hand here in front of me I just make everything about the pad of the hand and I leave I let the toes organize themselves I just say don't grip you know but the big toe is kind of a because you'll get coaches saying oh you know get to the big toe push off the big toe but the big toe isn't strong enough to really push off of <laughs> I, I don't know could you explain maybe some dynamics of when to actually get it like when when should I be coaching an athlete to at least like tap through that pad of the big toe and when do they need more flexor or FHL strength? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I probably like if, unless it was like an Achilles or like, uh, so he was an Achilles uh, rupture repair. Yeah. So like he, when his knee to wall, he was doing his knee to wall and he was like, he got a lot of protective tone in the back under his Achilles. So, you know, his big toe was stiff. So I was trying to influence his FHL. So in that scenario, I think, you know, I definitely want to, cue the pad a big toe but I, I'd be honest I wouldn't be going out to you know with an athlete and going I'm going to strengthen your FHL today you know I, I think if um, so like one of the exercises we do is the slouch but then instead of coming back up we'll explode onto a box so I don't know if you've seen that variation no, I haven't so it's a bit like you know Bosch's stuff where you'll do like an RDL up onto a box um, so we'll slouch and then what I'll do is I'll put the box maybe five meters in front of you and I'll say, stay in a tunnel, and I want you to keep slouch, keep your head relaxed, and I want you to push off that that uh, that foot so that we'll slouch them onto the midfoot. And to push off then in the tunnel onto a box, they have to generate a lot of tension there. So they'll find their big toe, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier, they'll find a way to be explosive to, to get on that. So that's probably if I wanted it, if I thought you yeah, had a turf toe, which we see a lot of them in rugby, and, you know, the, the first match, you know, they're, they're avoiding loading that. You know, I might do some hands-on around the capsule, try free up the, the big toe joint, then I might put them into that position where they have to really push off the, the big toe. So the intermediate step might be a uh, pad a big toe, get a little bit of, of just show the brain it's safe, but then put them into that explosive position and, 
and show them how to how to do that. So I think, yeah, to go back to your question, I think if, if it was a genuine, like if there was pathology or I felt like FHL was involved, then I might do that. But more, for most people, generically, you know, push all, squash and oranges is probably going to be good enough. And then just, as I said, put them on a box, go right, leap onto that box or, or explode onto that box. They, they, they'll have to find a big toe to generate force, you know, but it, there's a lot of stuff that happens before they find a big toe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that that makes good sense, and yeah, it helps to again. It's never one or the other. It's nice to know when that is uh, needed and necessary. Before we get out of here, Dave, you um, would you mind sharing? I know you, like you said you're not big on social media, but if people are interested in like your mentorship or what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, if you if you click on my website, you'll probably see me all over. Uh, social media so you'll think what's the album he's not big on social media uh but no we, we've got a, a team now that does the marketing I, i'm not big and personally going on, on social media anymore i, I try to, to stay off it if i can but uh, you can head over to the go to physio.com www.thegotophysio.com or like um, i think if you search my name i think it's dave o'sullivan on instagram dave o'sullivan physio um, i might come up on that uh, we're, yeah we've got some more content we're going to put out some more actual clinical content um in the next few months as well but yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm happy to, to share about anything you want. If you want the slouch videos and stuff, uh, you can embed them or, or, or do whatever you want to them. And yeah, that's that's it. Or my email is Dave at thegotophysio.com if you, if you want to email me on on that. And yeah, just uh, just check out that stuff. Um, and obviously, yeah, we've, we've got a mentorship. So, you know, as I said, it's just a combination of of building up a, a system for, for people. Take all the good stuff from my system and take all the good stuff from your system and you build your system. I'm not trying to, I, I always say it like David Gray is a great example of that. I'm not trying to create clones myself. You have to do it this way, you know, take the stuff and make it work for you because your population, Joe, is very different to mine. It's very different to, to the person working in, in national healthcare. So it's all about, you know, getting a system that works for you in your population. I think it's very important. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate having you on, man. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's great to be on. You know, I love what you're doing with the site. So it's a, it's a privilege to be on with, with some other great speakers thanks for listening to another show if you enjoyed it you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on itunes stitcher whatever you're listening to we'd really appreciate it we'll see you guys next week with another great guest have a good one